and welcome to The Future of Business, where we discuss current business issues that will have a significant impact on the future of business in Ireland and beyond, and explore their possible consequences for people in business and for society more generally. I'm Vincent Wall, and today I'm joined by Dr. Graham Love, consultancy partner with Mazars, and by Dr. Annie Duna, president of the Institute of Art, Design and Technology, IADT, Dunleary. You're very welcome both. Graham, turning to you first, um, it's a very broad subject we're going to discuss today, the whole third level sector in Ireland. Where, broadly speaking, do you see the opportunities and challenges? We've never had more young people studying. Yes, and we have currently about a quarter of a million people enrolled in higher education institutions in this country. We're the highest, I think, in Europe and one of the highest in the world in terms of participation in the third level. Um, it's a 2.5 billion euro system in Ireland, in effect, much of that publicly funded. Um, and I suppose human capital is Ireland's principal resource, isn't it? We don't have oil, we don't have minerals, we don't have a massive internal market. It's our people that, in effect, are going to drive living standards. So we're very dependent upon it. We are quite good at it relative to the resources that are made available. But we, we face a challenge. There's a demographic bulge coming at us. Um, we're going to grow by 40,000 40, students over the next 10 years. And we've already taken in about that number on top of the baseline over the last 10 years. It's fair to say the system is bursting, I think, Annie, would you agree? Mm-hmm. I do agree, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we need where, where are they going to go, in what streams, in what, what disciplines, you know, that type of thing. How do we know we're quite good at it? Is that externally audited in some way, validated in some yeah, way? Yeah, there's a number of ways that this is done. We'll all be familiar with the famous rankings, etc. Though they're really open to question. But I think one of the most important ones is the uh, is the employer feedback. If you look at it from an employment perspective, we consistently get very good feedback from employers about the quality of Irish graduates, which is quite a good reflection on the system. A system, though, I think is under strain now, you know, in terms of uh, uh, the capacity that's there. I think it's fair to point out politically as well that we are quite a cohesive nation. I think that's not uh, unrelated to the level of education here. You're not seeing the rise of the right and such things happening in Ireland that you're seeing in other parts of Europe. It's not only attributable to education and higher education, but I think it's significantly so. Annie, to, to Graham's point, I, I think the statistic is that there's a 46% participation rate of Irish people, of the population that goes on to third level of some sort, as against a European EU average of about 30%. Mm-hmm. That's obviously a good thing, but is the system is is the system able to cope with that? I think it's a good thing and it's not a good thing. Actually, Vincent, I think it's a good thing that people have access to third level. But I do think the focus on universities, institutes of technologies is a little short-sighted because for me, a student doing the Leaving Certificate or a student coming from further education should be thinking about not only third level at universities and institutes, but also maybe as in Germany, looking at apprenticeships, looking at going into employment with training and from school, looking at further education as well because Graham mentioned the big bulge you know and it's it's important that we open up higher education and that we have good access but I think the sole focus particularly around leaving cert time on the big universities on moving straight into third level doesn't help us to really provide a fully funded third level system for those that should be going on to it now I'm not being elitist I think third level is really important I think it's important to have access and openness to it but I do think we need to be saying that it's not the only route into work, into third level. It's not the only route to go straight into after school. There are other options. 
That begs the question without going too far back into history as to whether the Leaving Cert is the right platform for most people. I know there are more mature uh, students going into third level as well, but for most people going into third level, whether it's the right platform. And of course, there is a lot of talk about uh, reform to the second level curriculum now. What's your view? Mm. I really welcome the reform to the second level curriculum because I think the transition from the Leaving Cert into higher education is actually really difficult for some people. So there are lots of positives about the Leaving Certificate in terms of equity, but it is very focused on learning information and regurgitating that information. So any reform that introduces more continuous assessment, more actual learning and and showing how that learning is demonstrated through different forms other than examinations is to be welcome. Because when we get first years at IEDT, it's very difficult to get them into the self-directed learning, to get them into problem solving, to get them into the kind of creative thinking that, as Graham says, employers really value about the education system in Ireland. So for me, reform of second level that did introduce more creative thinking, more design thinking, more use of technology and a different focus other than just examinations would really help with that transition. And perhaps, you know, a greater focus on teamwork because the, the modern employment place is basically somewhere where activity is, is performed in groups. It's mm. not really performed in isolation, maybe mm. as it once was to some degree. Mm. And I think what we find sometimes in, in uh, people entering third level is uh, having kind of very much worked in that solo mode yeah. of, 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 yeah. of including the rote learning, etc. Mm. struggle with the idea of actually distributed tasks across the team, now distributed very often across countries mm. and mm. physical locations, etc. That's the norm. Mm-hmm. And actually the same thing should apply to your, your your capacity to acquire information, filter it, prioritise it, make a decision in a group dynamic. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those things, I suppose, the kind of very linear model of the lin- of the leaving cert poses a bit of a challenge. Mm-hmm. I also think, Graham, that we, you know, that one of the issues that we have is, is when you're offering students a choice when they come into third level. So you're saying, you know, you can do project A or project B. And we get students saying, well, which one do you want me to do? And sometimes, <laughs> really worryingly, which one will I get the highest Mark for. And, and that really comes from that focus on getting the grade, regurgitating information. So any reform that, as Graham says, introduces teamwork, problem solving, different ways of assessing is really welcome. That's a, a quick focus on the Leaving Cert itself as a platform for most people. What about third level institutions generally themselves? We see, particularly in the digital age, technological change, it's so rapid. Uh, We see more and more people, more and more employers, perhaps taking on the responsibility of of educating people themselves. Things are changing so fast that that people have to educate themselves. Uh, And there's there's some criticism, some commentary that the, the third level institutions haven't responded to the speed at which things are changing, particularly in, in digital industry. Mm. I think, again, there is a, there's an element of truth in that, in that we give people basic skills, we give them the problem-solving skills that Graham talked about, we give them the creative thinking, we give them the teamwork, and then we give them the knowledge that they require. But we do say to them, you know, the world is moving very fast and you are going to have to do some of that learning yourself in order to to keep up. And if we move on to resources um, for a second, it's very difficult for third level institutions to keep up with the latest software and resources and in the same way that maybe a, a private company can. So we have to do as much as we can to work with industry. We send students out into industry placements. We bring people working industry in so that they're hearing about those latest technologies. But really that creativity design thinking, problem solving really needs to be at the core and then the disciplines are folded around that and we try and keep up as, as much as we can. I think the, the, the model, the traditional 
you know, university third level model was three or four years between the age of 18 and 22 and you became an engineer, you became a doctor, you became a whatever. And you kind of, you were equipped with those and then you operated those skills for the next 40 years. That's clearly mm. not sustainable uh, for a number of reasons. Between technology and actually just the requirements of society now, people need to change continually. And yet most school leavers do pick some sort of professional training in those three or four years between 19 and 22 or 23. Which I, I have no issue with and I think that's where you can acquire the basic critical analysis and everything else. Whatever your field is actually, that gives you a good platform. But I have no doubt in my mind that your productive 40, 50 years that comes after that is going to require re-entering that space and updating of skills and potentially changing several times. You may be a civil engineer for a while and God knows what you end up going into, you know, four, five, six employers later. Mm -hmm. And it's the capacity for the people to acquire the training options on a flexible basis over a sustained period of time. So it's quite normal for a man like me at 48 to be re-entering and upskilling, mm -hmm. you know, or someone in their 60s. But also, I think, you know, the we, we do have the situation where students think, I want to study law and then I'll be a lawyer. But, you know, people change. You know, they study law and they move into business or they move into the creative world. You know, I have friends who work for RT and the BBC who don't have a creative background. They've come from all sorts of disciplines. So as Graham says, it it's perhaps less of a linear route than it was in the past. But people, what I always say to students is pick a subject that you are really passionate about. If you are going to study something for three or four years, be passionate about that. Certainly think about the career at the end of it, but that's not what you really should be focusing on at this stage. You pick something that you really want to study, that you're interested in. And then who knows where that might lead you in, in terms of future careers because you will need to retrain and upskill. So pick that passion. And do you think our third level system is responsive enough to that increasing need for lifelong learning? Or people who do change careers or do change tack in their 30s, 40s or 50s, do they automatically think of our formal third level? Well, I'll give you my view on that. And the answer to your question is no, in my view. Um, but I don't think that's entirely the fault of those institutions. Mm -hmm. I think the funding models we have, the levers, the policies that are applied from the centre, in effect, actually militate against it very often. I mean, quite frankly, today, the way uh, institutes of technologies and universities are funded is fundamentally a bums on seats model. OK, that does not link very easily to coming in two hours in the evening and doing, you know, a part-time upskilling. The contracts of employment that staff have in these institutions is typically geared around the, typically the nine-to-five type model, lectures, etc. Not again, you know, lending itself to evenings and weekends, etc., which I think is certainly part of the solution. Mm. So we need changes in policy, we need changes in funding model, and we need changes in employment methods. But do we need the colleges themselves to be agents of that change and push for, for, for you know, the trade unions to be more flexible in terms of when people teach, push for different funding models so that you can be more responsive to the way the workplace has become now. I think, I think that's a slightly, slightly old-fashioned view, Graham, <laughs> because I think if you came out to, to IADT on a Saturday, you would see a number of part-time master's courses. Yeah. I think if you came out in the evening, you would see the same. But what you also see in my institution and many others is us going out to industry. So we are out in the big companies running upskilling, running retraining, you know, running accredited programmes and we're bringing people in for short industry-based programmes. So I think it's shifting. I think there's a recognition now. I think it's that shifting, but I would still think out of the 
250,000 mm. students who are enrolled at the moment, 80 to 90% of those are engaged in the in the five-day week, eight-hour-a-day type, type mode, you know what I mean? I think, I suspect if you look at this picture in 30 years' time, that will invert in mm. some shape or form. There will be a body, a cohort always will go in and do that basic education, if you like to call it, uh, probably post-school, but a much greater number of people will be going through a constant updating, reskilling, reinteresting. People mm. might actually just change, you know. Working career now is probably going to be 60 years. We're all going to be living until we're 100. And do you think some of the older institutions in the third level sector, uh, Annie, are as nimble and flexible as you say IADT is in that regard? Because my view of certain campuses from about May to September is that they're pretty deficient of teachers as well as students. Yeah, I, yeah, and and some of them will be certainly. I mean, you know, you'll you'll find more tumbleweed on some campuses than others. But I think the pressure is there and the need is there to bring summer schools in, uh, and not not just third level. I mean, we at IDT we have young Irish filmmakers in over the summer. We have young Irish animators. You know, we have um, Coda Dojo. We have school children in learning about really important things to then develop into third level education. So it is about keeping the campus alive and keeping it vibrant. But I do think, Graham, that there is more now of a focus on lifelong learning yeah, and on getting and on getting that link with industry all the way through. Yeah. But as you said, the funding is very much predicated on the school leaver coming in, yeah. doing a full time course, and that is an issue. Yeah. That's lifelong learning. We are facing enormous change to the workplace in terms of uh, automation, artificial intelligence. Are our third level institutions looking around the corner sufficiently for the mindset that our employees of the future and our citizens of the future are going to require? Yes, I think we collectively we're waking up to this pretty quickly now. We've no choice, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Um, you've seen all the reports about the number of repetitive tasks that will be automated. And by repetitive, some of them we generally regard as quite sophisticated, for mm -hmm. example, in accountancy and the legal yeah. services, case law and all these kind of things that we need to shift our people to, and excuse the cliche, these higher value or value added type tasks, the more human, creative uh, type of uh, tasks and objectives that people have, where humans will always be better, quite frankly, than machines or any algorithm. Um, and we better do it because <laughs> jobs will be replaced very quickly. But I'm, I'm confident about that in the long term, mm. in the long term. Like all disruptions, there will be some pain on the way. Mm. I'm confident about it as well. And I think it goes back to what we were saying about the key skills that no matter what degree you're doing, those are at the core of it because they're the things that are sustainable no matter how the industries are changing or how much automation is coming in. If you've got adaptable problem-solving teamworking individuals, they can adapt to new industries and to where the jobs are. In terms of that demographic bulge that's coming down the road, 40,000 additional students going to hit the system. In terms of planning for the changes in the workforce in, 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 in life generally, in terms of the resources that are going to be required, who's actually responsible for all of that or who should be? I mean, is it some centralised planning system going on or is it the individual colleges? Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Colleges have autonomy, which I think is absolutely right. We, we do need autonomy. But I do personally get very irritated that there isn't a bit more central planning. Now, not, you know, what does industry need and therefore we slavishly follow that. But if I give you an example, um, you know, courses in film, of which 
IADT has the National Film School. We've seen a number of film courses open up around the country. Now, the pros of that is it means that there is film in the regions and people don't have to travel. But I would like some more centres of excellence approach that says, really, if you are studying animation somewhere, and this won't be a popular view in higher education, to, oh, let me tell you, if you're studying animation somewhere where that you're not near the big animation industries, you're not able to do the placement, the work projects, I think that's problematic. So on the one hand, it's important that we are autonomous but I do think there does need to be a bit more of the HEA or the department saying, well, hang on, we need to think about what kind of programmes are needed for the future, not in an instrumentalist way, but in a way that recognises that centres of excellence may have some value. You might argue that, mightn't you, Annie, given that I you're would, based in Dunleary? Absolutely, and, uh, yeah, and we, we are a very specialist institution. I, I do understand that. If I was the president of Trinity, I might have a different, a different view. But certainly uh, for me, that balance between centralised planning and autonomy has to be better. To that point, I, I, I would have a different view to, to Annie on that, to an extent. Um, I think it, for certain, um, certain careers and training paths like medicine and teachers and nurses, etc., where there is a, a natural destination in hospital schools, etc., I think you have to have a control system because there will only be places in the, the end point that are driven, I guess, from the centre, be it the Department of Education, the Department of Health. But if we go to the rest of the pool, I have a, a more market-based view, uh, which I think is that um, the funding model and the way it works should effectively combine to allow that centre of excellence concept develop. But you should be free to build your school of whatever it is in X, Y and Z. And what will happen is the excellence of your product your training service or whatever else will speak for itself in five or ten years' times according to the demand that the students who want to go there. So I want to go to IADT to do editing and design because, quite frankly, it's known for it and it's got the best um, you know, reputation. The students give it the best feedback. The employers give it the best feedback. So that's that would be my view. It's, and I don't... I suppose I have a difficulty with over-centralised planning. Mm. I, I do too, but but I mean, is is it right that, for example, you might have fifteen business courses all with ten students each within a five mile radius? No, it would be, uh, but I think through a Darwinian process that will evolve, and you will end up with one or two good ones. I suppose the point I was going to put, put to you, though, Graham, perhaps being on any side in this one. Yeah. That free market approach takes time to iron out. Yes. And in the meantime, you could have a significant wastage and duplication of resources. It, it is possible. And I, I, I don't want to be over free market about it. I mean, regulations required, standards have to be there, etc. It's not, it's not just purely a business by any means. This is, this is education. Yeah. Um, but I do think if it's fully centralised, we will miss the feedback loop of the demand, the demand of students to go to IADT, for example, for film and editing, the demand to go to University X because of its med school, because it is known to be brilliant. Mm. I think also we probably have to be realistic, and I'm not arguing against myself here, but, you know, we've, we've seen much more regionalisation of education because it's very difficult for students to move away from home now because the cost of accommodation, no matter where you are, um, you know, in any of the major centres, whether are universities or colleges, is very high. So in a way, if I'm down in Intralee or I'm in um, Donegal or whatever, you know, and I, I'm not going to move to one of the biggest cities because of the accommodation, then maybe you would say, well, why shouldn't they be able to study psychology or, or business there? So it's it's complicated, I think. And I think as well, there's um, there's a there, there is a need for some level of replication. That was the student access point of view. Mm -hmm. But also, if you think about the importance of, of these institutions to businesses in their area, and there's very well established evidence now that the proximity of the knowledge to the user of the knowledge in the form of various businesses, etc., 
has a great determination on its use. So if you're a creamery at work, dairy in, in what some part of Kerry, you're much more likely to access that knowledge relatively locally than you are, you know, 400 miles away somewhere else. So there's a, there's a need to have some, some level of regional provision that way. I suppose the issue is quality, Graham, isn't it? You yeah. Know, providing that... For me, the quality would include um, access to industry and access to relevant industries. So maybe the, the issue is that if you are going to have these courses spread out, then there is a quality assurance and standards that you must make sure. That's the best that lever so yeah. that you can't have 15 business schools because someone will come in and inspect and say, actually, yeah. 11 of them are simply not performing. And we're, we're treating yeah. those students badly, in effect, yeah. because they would be paying to do that. I think that's the best guarantor rather than letting it be utterly free market. <laughs> The thorny issue of funding. Mm. Can I assume that both of you believe the state should be putting more in directly in terms of subsidising the system? Mm. It's, I mean, we're both sighing. We both sighed when you, when you said the word funding there, <laughs> Vincent, because as, as a president, it is you know one of the things that I think about an awful lot. And when I meet with my fellow presidents, that's what we talk about. It's complicated because... You know, all the evidence, um, even very recent evidence, shows that if you get a third level education, you are more likely to get a higher paid job. You are more likely to have a better quality of life. So there's a part of me that says, therefore, there should be some contribution made by the student. Now, that has to take into account where people can't make a contribution. There has to be a very very well-developed and solid grant system to enable access and to support disadvantaged students. But do I think that the student themselves should pay something? Yes. Do I think that the state should pay? Yes. Do I think that there should be student fees and loans? I don't know, because it hasn't worked in the UK, in which I have some experience, for all sorts of reasons, not least that the return to the government isn't, isn't good. It doesn't seem to have had much impact on access, but then free education are you know, a, a small student contribution hasn't made a massive impact on access in this country either. So I'm giving you very inconclusive answers here because I do think it's complicated. I do think the state has a responsibility to provide third level education. Absolutely. But I do think that maybe the current system we have where there is a student contribution with a good solid grant system is, is no harm either. And I would be of the view the state needs to pay more, but largely, I think, as well, there is, as Annie referred to there, what's known as the graduate premium. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there's got to be some link back, I think, with graduate premium to 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 that allocation of resources that, in fact, happens over a, a university or third level qualification. And while the UK, frankly, made a bit of a mess of it mm -hmm. because they changed the policy of this, what's referred to as the income contingent loan, fancy phrase for once you start earning enough, you'll pay back some of your, you know, your, your the investment that was made in you uh, being educated at third level. Australia have done a pretty good job on it in the main. There is some level of default, but they've done a reasonably good job. But the size of the gap between the resources that are going into the system now and what it needs to be, mindful also of the additional students coming into the system, needs both the state, I think, and probably the student and the third partner in this, the employers who benefit from it, contributing into that pot. And we had we had the Taoiseach recently saying, you know, that we don't want to increase the student contribution. Uh, we don't want to introduce loans um, and, and income contingent loans. So those of us in higher education went, OK, so where's the next what step? What will we have? Yeah. And we don't know. You know, we, we've had the Cassells report. We've had five or six options on the table for 10 years and we just haven't picked one yet. We're kind of messing about with one or two options rather than saying, here's the state's contribution, here's the student's contribution. 
And are you both worried that unless that extra funding comes from whatever source or from a number of sources, as you've advocated, that we will continue to slip down the academic rankings globally and that's not good competitively for the Irish economy as well as mm. culturally and educationally? Oh, absolutely. We are seriously underfunded. Uh, our staff-student ratios are high by European standards. So on the one hand, it's, it's lack of funding and on the other hand, it's employment restrictions. So the government's restriction on how many staff we can employ in, in any institution. And I had budget meetings this week where I was talking to my estates manager and she was literally making choices between do I fix the roof that summer or do I fix those drains that really need fixing? You know, we are in that stage where capital investment has been very poor. Uh, it's changing now. We've just got a new building approved in IEDT. I think it's beginning to come back, but there is still serious legacy underfunding that really needs to be addressed. You can't take a 20 or 25% increase in students that has happened over the last 10 years and a further 20 25% growth over the next 10 years with r roughly static funding and expect the quality to be the same, period. And, and yet, if I may wear a journalistic hat briefly, are our third-level institutions transparent enough, uh, given the fact that you need to have academic autonomy? Are you transparent enough in terms of how you spend public money? We've had a lot of controversies mm -hmm. where we've seen significant wastage and vanity projects in various colleges and, and very little transparency as to why that happened. Yeah, and, and I, I would be absolutely in agreement that there needs to be transparency, so there needs to be openness and that colleges and, and presidents of colleges have a huge responsibility with their governing body to make sure that they are spending public money effectively. You know, we've had the high-profile high cases and, and they're not good for the system as a whole, but we are audited, we are regulated, and I would be saying to those institutions, what were their governing bodies doing? What were their audit committees doing? What was the HEA doing? You know, why weren't they in and spotting that these things weren't happening? happening in, in the correct way and following up on it. So unfortunately, we tend to do the sledgehammer thing. There's a small problem in three or four institutions. So everybody gets then over audited and over regulated. And I think if you've got a good leadership and good governing body and good auditing, those things shouldn't be allowed to happen. I think we have a challenge, though, in some institutions at the uh, at the governing body board level. Well, the legislation in, in the Universities Act, for example, uh, etc. Uh, you know, you have these, I suppose, bo effectively boards with sometimes 40 people on them. Mm. And, you know, there are there are what I'd call represent representational behaviours at those boards. You know, some of it's staff, some of it you could be political, some of it's uh, councillors, whatever, on those boards. That's not an effective governance structure for a modern institution that's trying to run efficiently, mm. effectively, um, but that's coded into the legislation. So to one, some degree, the institutions are hamstrung by some of the legislation that they have, and some of them indeed haven't, haven't, haven't played best practice anyway in some of these... But that story is largely a good one. Some of the stuff has been, I think, overplayed mm. in the media, etc. I mean, remember, 2.5 billion industry, 250,000 yeah. students churning out 50,000 graduates yeah. a year. This is an enormous sector and one that's really important to Ireland. Not to spin it too hard, but I mean, at the end of the day, uh, attracting multinationals, hopefully growing more our indigenous business, you know, our productivity at home. Um, is going to rely on people moving up this uh, famous value chain. That's what I was saying about, you know, it's a small number of institutions and, and yet everybody is, is perceived in the same way. But I would say to you, Graham, you know, the HEA had a role in this. Yeah. I mean, they had a role in, in 
auditing what was going on in the institutions, the universities and the institutes of technology. Yeah, I think it, and it just for the listeners and to, to understand, previously I was CEO of the Higher Education Authority, I should declare that. <laughs> but I think as we found, quite frankly, the HEA was lacking in terms of its legislation. We found that out the hard way last year. You know, that the, it was, it's been traditionally a very good funder. Mm-hmm. It's traditionally been very good at aggregating statistics and information about the sector. But over the last number of years, since the Hunt report, it was given this role, I suppose, of an oversight body, quasi-regulator. But in fact, we found that its legis- underpinning legislation does not allow that to happen. Well, third-level education is a very broad topic, so we're going to leave the conversation there for this podcast. Thanks to Dr. Graham Love and Dr. Annie Duna. We'll pick up the conversation again in our next podcast. Until the next time, take care. Thank you for listening to The Future of Business with Vincent Wall and Mazars. We welcome any feedback to our podcasts and particularly your suggestions as to topics we should cover. You can comment and rate us wherever you find this podcast or on mazars.ie. Bye for now.